You are now listening to She Knows Data, a podcast dedicated to female professionals working with and investigating trends, technologies, and careers in big data and advanced analytics. Hello, welcome to She Knows Data. I'm your host, Jasmine Merrick. My guest today is Monique Hessling. With more than 25 years of experience in the insurance industry, Monique has held senior leadership positions in marketing, product development, sales, operations, R&D, and business intelligence. She has worked for such companies as ACE Group, Zurich Insurance, Accord, and Mutual of Omaha. Throughout her career, Monique has helped companies grow their business based on data insights and analytics. She's worked on numerous BI initiatives, data warehousing, customer insights effort, market segmentation, and product development projects. Her success in assisting global development is widely renowned. Monique, welcome. Good morning, Jasmine. How are you today? I'm very good. And yourself? Wonderful. Thank you. It's a beautiful day out here. That's great. Well, I will say that you have quite a varied background, and, and I gave just a, a brief overview, but it would be great to have some understanding on how you were able to navigate your career and, and what led you to where you are today. Sure. It's an interesting question because when I, when I looked at my resume uh, recently to prepare for this call, it almost looks like one of those resumes that people try to develop for themselves when they do their MBA or something. It looked very organized and it really wasn't. I started working in insurance because, because I got an opportunity there, to be honest, and I came out of college and needed to make money. My dad was an insurance broker and I always mentioned that I never wanted to end up in the field and obviously I did. But the, the threat through my whole career, overall the steps that I took, has been an increased focus, increasing and increased focus on data and analytics, ultimately residing in my current position at Accenture, where in the data business group, I manage offerings and tribes, as Accenture calls it. And I thought that would be really cool because it sounds like an usual religion, right? People give me offerings, my tribes give me offerings. But unfortunately, it means products and people. So I manage our data in the new services and products and the teams that go with it for the data business group. Now, was there any particular point that you could say switched your focus more to the data side? Yeah, yeah, I think there was. At around 2000, I worked at Mutual of Omaha and we were setting up a very progressive and very interesting CRM type environment to understand the customers better and also set us up for the technology in the future. It was a very committed, long, painful in those days project. And we hired a handful of people that now would be referred to as data scientists. And it took forever to prep data for them to get value out of it. And it was very frustrating because these were very well-trained, enthusiastic, passionate people. And, they, and it was not the only company that went through this. Everybody did. But they had to spend 80 90% of their efforts on prepping data before we could get any insights of value out of it. And that really made me understand how important it is to get that whole data environment right, that it's very, very difficult to get any insights of value out of it if you don't get the foundational data parts right. 
And unfortunately, we still run into that, right? We still run into small and large organizations where people spend a very significant amount of their time doing data prep, as I call, um, as I tend to refer to as heroically spreadsheeting, before they get any value out of, you know, all the wonderful sources of information they potentially have. That's very true. And I heard a stat last uh, week that said 70% of a data science or a data prep experience is really on the curation and uh, the preparation of data. So I think you really helped to articulate the fact that, you know, it's a challenge there and one we're continuing to improve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And think about it. It is sad, right? Think about it. You you go to school forever. You're obviously passionate about it. You have a PhD in some important data skill and you start working or you've been in your company for a while and you truly want to work with the data and work with the data means you're getting insights and value and improving efficiency and monetizing on it all those great things and instead you clean up stuff most of the time so that leads to the next question well what are you working on now to answer your question data cleaning and data prep is a big part of it I see an increased focus, which I'm very happy with, by the way, also on data governance, obviously data security, anything related to privacy or regulations, that's a big focus right now. The other thing that is really hot is so-called data veracity. That is, let me give you an example. When we were worried about data quality in the past, it used to be sort of rules driven. So I always use the gender example because people understand that easily. So in the old, slightly older days than now, if we would do a data quality assessment, you would have a name, right? Jasmine, Monique, whatever. You would have a gender code related to it and normally an, an M, an F, or another option for we don't know, right? And if, if any of those boxes was populated with one of those fields, your data quality was 100%. However, that doesn't make it right. If you and I would have an M for male attached to our name, any classical quality tool would still uh, declare the quality 100% correct because you had a va valid entry in that specific field, but it was obviously wrong. So what data veracity really does is from the beginning of lineage, to the actual uh, content of every data field, it tries to judge and improve on the so-called trust of the data. And that is an area where I see an enormous amount of activity going in on right now. So that's interesting. Uh, are there any specific tools or companies that are helping in that field? Yeah, there are tools starting to develop and some of them are really good. Um, most of the bigger firms uh, like ours and probably the uh, other big firms in the space, right, develop sort of their own suite because what happens, it's, it's still it's an area where you have tools that are best in class for part of that process. So there are really good tools for data discovery. There are really good tools for data profiling. Knowledge graph databases and knowledge graphing can be used to do some of the trust and ecosystem relational kind of aspects on it. And it's hard to find one fully comprehensive full to nuts or nuts to bolts, I always forget which way it goes, but environment that touches on all of them. And that can be a problem with structured data, so it gets obviously even worse, so there's a bigger opportunity when we look at unstructured or semi-structured data. 
Yeah, that's true. And I think the tools are definitely one part, but the other part is the people and the process. Mm -hmm. How are you advising around that side of the business? Yeah, it's interesting that, bring, that, that you bring this up because when I was thinking about our conversation and, and looking through some of the, you know, projects and people and work that I have done over the last couple of years, it's actually at the moment, it's more a matter of process and people than it is a matter of technology and tools. I was talking to a CIO a couple of weeks ago and I told him that right now from a technical perspective, from a technology perspective, we can fix, we in general, right, the world, not Monique, but for you and I, Jen, Jasmine, we can fix from a technical perspective any data problem imaginable. It might be expensive, it might be painful, it might take a lot of time, but everything is technologically doable right now. Where we're struggling is getting the processes and the people in place. So what I am seeing is that large data initiatives in organizations at the moment have an increasing scope in change management in it. Ten years ago, they all used to be about the technology and the technology would define what companies could do or not. Now it's almost a given the technology will be able to do what companies want to do, but it's the question becomes, can we get our people on board and, and comfortable with the opportunities that this technology is offering? So what have you been seen as some good examples of, of a change, positive change process? Some of these are some might sound a little bit odd, but uh, first of all, start with data strategy and data governance. It, speak, it sounds like it speaks for itself, but we see a lot of big integration projects or mergers or acquisition, these huge kind of moments in the corporate life where everybody starts running around getting all the technicalities in place, including sometimes IT, and forgets about data and data becomes an afterthought. And that is not a way to do it um, because it will have to be addressed at a point in time, the whole change from data and usage and processes. The longer you wait, the more painful and quite often more expensive it will get. Good things that I have seen is really start early on with data governance and data stewardship and data users involved in any part of the processes. It's a little bit of a painful startup because it does require resources, but it adds a lot of value during the rest of the um, engagements. The second thing is you do things like keep your enemies close, right? In every organization, there are informal leaders and they can be very vocal against change because they're very comfortable in the position that they are right now, formally and informally. And there might be very valid reasons why they're not happy with what anybody is recommending. So keep them close and get their involvement in key change processes so that they become a stakeholder in it. Uh, tends to be a way that works if 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 one can get it done. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, I'm hearing you say start with governance, make sure you can trust the quality of the data that's flowing through the organization and make sure that you have all the necessary stakeholders on board and moving to the right direction. That, is that mm -hmm. a good summary? Formally and informally. And yeah, the quality question is difficult, right? Because what you describe as an ideal world, you would like to have the data quality in place at the, at the level that you wanted to. It's not normally realistic to expect that, but at least know how bad it is, right? If you can't fix it right now, at least know what you get yourself into. 
Yeah, and, and one of the things when I personally speak to CIOs is I think they understand the value of governance, but they have a hard time articulating the ROI, right? With mm -hmm. other technologies, it's very simple. We spend X, we will get Y. With yep. government, it's more about making sure that we can trust it. Uh, any advice there? Yeah, but there, are, there are a couple of ways to look at that. And you're right, it is, it is a soft ROI quite often. But there are a couple of drivers that make it easier to swallow for CIOs. And, and you, maybe the CIO is not always the right person to talk to in some organizations. The COO, um, it depends on you know, who owns the um, responsibility and the budget for that specific function. Um, one is regulations. Anytime that there is any sort of regulatory pressure on governance and data usage, that's, that always creates budgets in companies, miraculously so always because it has to be done right so so gdpr did a good thing the european privacy legislation did a great thing for um data governance around privacy data hipaa of course has has really supported governance around health related information in the united states and there are many other examples that way so that is one side of it the second side is i i always tell see sweet people you know, look at it as part of an investment in your people and in change management. Change management is very hard to ROI too. You know, many of the people resource investments are not easy to quantify, but we all feel we need to do them. It's almost like a hygiene factor in the company. You have to do it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% in agreement with you there. Okay, so that's a good transition to my last question specific to the people. What do you see as the, the skills gap or the education gap that is currently missing in the industry? But what I see is there is a gap between business subject matter expertise and data scientists. And the last couple of years, companies have been invested a lot of money in recruiting and training so-called data scientists, but they sometimes forgot the value of their business needs in those processes. So crunching data and getting insights out of data without knowing the business processes or the business you are actively, actively in well is quite often a waste of time. So my current recommendation is you need technical data scientists, of course, but do not underestimate the value of your business needs. And if you can train them up, try to find business needs that can be cross-trained as a data scientist or the other way around, because those are going to be your ideal data people. And I'll give you an example of that. I used to work for a company that did life and property and casualty insurance and a data scientist, extremely smart PhD in statistics gentleman, himself in a cubicle, crunched data for a couple of weeks and came to the very insightful conclusion that life insurance uh, customers complain an awful lot less after a claim than health insurance customers. Now take a step back and think about that. Anybody that has worked in claims in either life insurance or health insurance would laugh loudly because life insurance claims, you know, most people are either that, that's difficult to complain after, uh, or, and it's normally a pretty straightforward case, right? In health, you have many more claims moments and you have many more gray areas and you have many more discussions about your treatments and claims amounts, et cetera. So it's a very logical conclusion that health customers complain a lot more after the claim than life customers. 
and you should not have to spend weeks in a cubicle crunching numbers to figure that one out. So the combination between SMEs and data scientists is actually a gap in the industry right now, I think. I would agree with you. I think that's part of why I started this podcast as well. You can absolutely go to school to understand the technical acumen, but there's not a lot of educational that mix the the technical acumen with the industry knowledge. Uh, And sometimes that's creating a combination of a group, people who have the subject matter expertise and people who have the technical expertise. And other times it's finding that perfect blend of an individual who can manage that conversation throughout. Yeah, and I think a group is a good idea because it's not easy to find that perfect blend. Finding perfect is never easy, right? So a group, uh, you know, or some sort of a sounding board kind of environment, it's probably the way to go, at least short term. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, we are moving on to the personal questions. These are fun, rapid-fire questions that help the listener identify with you as an individual. Are you ready, Monique? Okay, I guess. (laughs) All right. Uh, What television show or movie have you enjoyed recently? Oh, that's a cool one. Um, I watched Wanted, which is about two Australian women on the run. It's a series. It's really cool. Oh, all right. I'll check that one out. They they, they do their nails while they're trying to escape police chases and stuff like that. (laughs) Uh, What music do you listen to when alone? Oh, this is almost an embarrassing question. Um, Disco. It's happy music. I like it. I dance to it too when I'm alone. I do like to dance, so I I second that one. Do it in the kitchen when there's nobody (laughs) around. (laughs) Uh, Favorite non-work activity? I have a couple of them. Um, I read a lot, trashy novels, easy stuff. Uh, Walking, get some fresh air, take a walk, clean up the brain. And I actually clean my house on Saturdays. I think that's relaxing, just cuddle around the house by myself. Oh, I don't know if I can agree with the relaxing, cleaning the house part. Well, well, what you can do, what I would suggest is if you want to get other people out of the house, like my husband and my sons, I combine some of my interests and I clean while listening to disco and singing along with it. And they vanish within like seconds. That is a good trick. Uh, Recent splurge. What have you spent money on? I bought an expensive blanket. I like blankies and a handbag can't go wrong with that no no uh last one one life hack so favorite productivity tool or resource Oof. okay i'm going to cheat because i'm going to give you two i came from research r&d so i grew up in the era when you still physically had to go to the library and go over books and magazines to find data So I like any good search engine. That's a very classical answer, but that's really, I think, the biggest changer in my life around that thing. And Uber. Well, this has been very informative, Monique. Uh, Right before we leave, where can the audience find you? Any website, book, course, something we should know about? Nah, I don't write books. (laughs) I talk better than that I write, I guess. LinkedIn would be the easiest way to find me. And if anybody ever wants to reach out, I always respond. So amazing thank you again i know i learned a lot and i think our listeners did too thanks monique thank you thank you